It's Friday, January 4th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. We have another possible spy mystery on our hands. This time, an American named Paul Whelan has been arrested in Russia, where the Russian Federal Security Service said he was caught during an espionage operation. Kristen Seamus, reporter for the Detroit Free Press, joins us for what we know about Paul Whelan and the response from the U.S. to get him back. Next, the new Congress has been sworn in, and it is the most diverse congressional class in history. Nancy Pelosi has regained the speakership of the House, and it is setting up a showdown with the administration, as she will be the main counterbalance to President Trump. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios, joins us to talk about the new diversity and the agenda for the Democrats this year. Finally, Los Angeles has become the first city in the United States to deploy an earthquake early warning app for the public. The app is called Shake Alert LA, and it uses a network of seismic sensors to detect earthquakes and send warnings to smartphones, hoping to give seconds or tens of seconds of notice to residents before an earthquake hits. Ron Lynn, reporter for the LA Times, joins us for more on this new early warning system. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I'm sure my brother's not a spy. Paul's background is in law enforcement. He has military experience. He's in corporate security. He's one of the people I would say knows very well about risks when traveling or uh, being in foreign countries or being in any kind of situation. And I just can't imagine him doing anything anywhere close to breaking an espionage act. Joining us now is Kristen Seamus, reporter for the Detroit Free Press. We have another spy mystery on our hand. This time, it's a former staff sergeant with the Marines. His name is Paul Whelan. He was arrested by Russian officials, and they have charged him with espionage. They said that he was caught during an espionage operation. There's a lot of twists and turns in this story. So what do we know about Paul Whelan? We know that he was indicted on espionage charges on Thursday, and that's from Russia's Interfax News Agency that first reported it. And then he now has a Russian lawyer who was appointed by the Russian government to represent him. Bail was requested for him, but he'll remain in custody at least until February 28th. His lawyer told reporters if he is convicted, he'll serve up to 20 years in prison. He has a twin brother who has been making some of the media rounds and obviously advocating for him. The family has said, you know, he's not a spy. We don't know if it's a case of wrong place, wrong time, anything like that. But he traveled to Russia on December 22nd, supposedly to help a friend from the Marines who was getting married in Moscow. That's what his brother told me when I talked to him a couple of days ago. David Whalen said that he is absolutely certain that his brother is innocent. They are twin brothers and they grew up in Michigan uh, in the Ann Arbor area. He insists that his brother was just there to help a friend. Paul apparently was a world traveler. He traveled for business. He traveled for pleasure. He loved visiting other countries and, and going all over the world. And his brother said that he'd been to Russia multiple times and that when his friend was getting married there, he asked Paul if he would travel with his family to Russia and help them get around because it can be difficult to navigate and figure out where you have to go when you don't speak the language. And apparently Paul was at least partially fluent in Russian. He had a Russian social media account and he, he did have this affinity for Russia. And as you said, he had traveled there a few times. It's kind of a confusing, mysterious story. They said that he was caught during an espionage operation. But a lot of people are saying he doesn't necessarily fit the profile. He was in the military, 
but he got discharged. There are a lot of contradictions, and among them is that he did get a court-martial. He was arrested while he was working for the Marines, and he was charged with larceny. He got a bad conduct discharge in 2008 and was court-martialed. He passed bad checks and was found guilty of using someone else's Social Security number by the Marine Corps. What are the other some of the other big ties that he has to Russia? I know we mentioned the social media. He seemed to be a fan. I, I know that there's been posts about President Trump. Explain some of those things. There's the big question of Maria Butina, who is a Russian national who was arrested here in the United States, and she pled guilty to conspiring to act as an agent for the Kremlin. She had been working for years to infiltrate American political groups, including the National Rifle Association. And some are speculating that Paul Whelan's arrest is an attempt by the Russians to orchestrate a trade, that perhaps what they want to do is take Paul Whelan into their custody and say, if the United States returns Maria Butina to them, they'll return Paul Whelan to us. That's an interesting notion, if that's at play. You guys have talked to a lot of people, and they say that you never know what Vladimir Putin is up to, but it's kind of an odd situation to detain this guy if you want to increase the relations between the U.S. and Russia. But maybe a spy trade could help trigger some of that stuff, I guess? It's very curious. It's really hard to say what's going on. And depending on the expert you talk with, you get a different response on what they think. What I found interesting was the statement that Mike Pompeo the Secretary of State made Wednesday from Brazil when he talked about Paul Whelan. And he said, and this is a quote, if the detention is not appropriate, we will demand his immediate return. That leaves it open to so much speculation right there. Absolutely. It's very lukewarm. It isn't a bold statement. It isn't saying we demand that this U.S. citizen be returned to us immediately. And that to me gave me pause. I really thought hard about that statement. The U.S. ambassador to Russia, John Hutzman, has been out there and he's uh, seen Paul. He's spoken to the family. He's getting involved at this point. Anything else we know about what we're trying to do to figure it out? He's being held at what is called the Fortovo Detention Facility in Moscow, and it's notorious for its deplorable conditions. And he was arrested on December 28th, which would be almost exactly a week ago. So he's been there for quite some time, and John Huntsman didn't get the chance to go talk to him until Wednesday. So he had been there for a long time without any American contact, which I'm sure had to be a little difficult for him to endure. It's just such a mysterious thing, and we are trying to do our best to weed out the story and see what's going on, but things are just trickling out very slowly. They are. And that's the trick is trying to figure out exactly who this man is and what he was doing in Russia, if truly the family story is accurate or whether there was something more. I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about Paul Whelan and his time in Russia and whether he was up to something out there. Kristen Seamus, reporter for the Detroit Free Press. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm particularly proud to be the woman speaker of the House of this Congress and that we all have the ability and the privilege to serve with over 100 women members of Congress, the largest number in history. Joining us now is Steph Kite, reporter for Axios. We now have a new Congress sworn in. The 116th Congress, all 535 members between the House and the Senate, is the most diverse Congress that we have in history. 
Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, they have a big agenda, big plans, but let's talk about the makeup of the Congress this time. One of the, the biggest points that we've seen, one of the biggest changes is in the number of women who are now in Congress. They make up about almost a quarter of the total Congress members. 25 women will be in the Senate and more than 100 will be in the House now. And the majority of those women are Democratic, but there are a few Republicans as well. So I think that's one of the biggest changes that we've seen in this new Congress. But we also have the first two Muslim women in Congress. We have the first two Native American women in Congress. We have the first Palestinian American woman. We have the first Somali American woman. There are so many firsts in this Congress and really does. We have a much richer, more diverse Congress today than we did at any other point in the past. Yeah, I mean, it's great. And we had been talking about this leading up into the midterms. And as returns were coming in, the wave of women, obviously, you mentioned that a lot of them are Democratic members. There are a lot of Republican women that are part of the Congress as well. But let's talk a little bit about Nancy Pelosi. She was sworn in as Speaker of the House, the first woman to hold that position and then regain that position. She is going to be the big check in the government right now against the president. Democrats are trying to oppose a lot of the things that he is proposing. So she is going to be the big check in Congress. She really is. A lot of people are looking ahead to 2019 and 2020 as a Pelosi-Trump match, where we're going to see Pelosi kind of leading the charge against the Trump administration's policies and also as the House investigates Trump and his administration for multiple things and anything from the Russia-related investigations to the use of funds to Trump's own work with his business while also seeing the president of the United States. So I think we're going to see this kind of match off between the two of them over and over and over again. And I think just starting right now when we're looking at the government shutdown and whether they are able to reach a compromise on this, Pelosi has not backed down from her stance that the House should not sign on to any bills that give the president the funding that he's asking for the walls. I think that's just the first example of many that we're going to see. There was a lot of interesting optics that were going on uh, as she was retaining the speakership. Tony Bennett was in the in the gallery. Mickey Hart from The Grateful Dead was there. There was a lot of standing ovations given as they were introducing her. So, I mean, everybody's very excited, but she had her dissenters as well. People, there was a lot of incoming freshmen that didn't vote for her. They voted for a lot of other members, but overall she got 220 votes, well over the number that she needed, but she did have those people that did not vote for her. There were several new Congress members who did not vote for Pelosi for a host of reasons. Some feel like they needed someone new, they needed fresh blood. It's kind of something that we've been hearing, especially in the Democratic Party. There's sort of this divide in the Democratic Party over where leadership should be coming from, whether it should be this younger, more progressive generation, or should they just revert back to Pelosi, who has been speaker before, but is still one of the most well-known and powerful Democratic leaders today. You had mentioned some of the agenda items that Nancy Pelosi had and the Democrats as well. Chief among them is reopening the government. And Mm -hmm. there's still no consensus on what's going to happen with that. Democrats do not want to give the president the funding for the border wall. They're going to pass a bunch of legislation to fund the federal departments, but that's really going to go nowhere. It's going to be a non-starter in the Senate because they've said 
they're not going to take anything up unless the president supports it. This shutdown is going on all two weeks now, and it really doesn't look like there's going to be a resolution anytime soon, as both sides seem to have really dug into their own stances. The president unwilling to sign on to anything that doesn't include funding for his border wall, the $5 billion that he's demanded. But at the same time, Democrats in the House have are deciding to vote. They're going to be voting on two bills that would reopen the government. It would essentially fund most agencies through the end of the year, but would fund DHS just into next month to allow time for more discussion over the border wall. But at this point, the president has said that he's not even willing to sign on to that, that he wants it all done all at once. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said that he would not bring the House bills forward in the Senate if the president did not support them. So we're kind of stuck in this limbo of no one being willing to to compromise. Meanwhile, hundreds of thousands of federal workers aren't receiving payment for the work they're doing or are out of work for the time being. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting time, the dynamics that are going to play out, because the House is going to pass a bunch of stuff that are going to be non-starters in the Senate. I know they want to address a lot of corruption stuff aimed at the president. It's not going to happen in the Senate. They want to address a lot of climate change issues. It's not going to happen in the Senate. So the Democrats have to find a lot of common ground and things that they can work on to put more pressure on Republicans and the president to play ball. So it's going to be crazy this next year. It's a line that Pelosi has to watch carefully where she needs to insist on the Democratic priorities and make sure that she is still upholding the values of her party and standing firm on what many Democrats think that she should be doing, which is pushing back against the Trump administration. But at the same time, she is faced with working with a Republican majority Senate and with a Republican president. And she does have to ensure that when they are looking at legislation, something that they put forward has to be able to get through. And whether that's infrastructure, which tends to be a topic that can be somewhat bipartisan, or even drug prices, that's maybe something that there could be some bipartisan agreement on. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. We've often said here in Los Angeles that L.A., it's not a question of if, it's a question of when the next big one is going to hit. This technology is truly uh, cutting edge. And here in Los Angeles, we push those uh, limits of technology because we see the power of what is possible. Joining us now is Ron Lynn, reporter for the L.A. Times. Los Angeles has become the first city in the United States to deploy an earthquake early warning app for the public. It's called Shake Alert L.A. The state has been working on this for some time. Other countries like Japan and Mexico have had some of these early warning systems in place for a little bit now. But L.A. is the first city to do so. What do we know about Shake Alert L.A.? It's an app that's available right now in the Apple and Android stores. It's free to the public, and you download it, and it's available for people who are living and working in L.A. County. And what it does is if a magnitude 5 or larger earthquake happens and shaking is expected in L.A. County, it's supposed to give you an alert, hopefully, before the shaking arrives. You get the most amount of time if you're farther away from the earthquake, but you can get potentially seconds or maybe even tens of seconds before shaking arrives from a big earthquake. One key example might be if an earthquake happens near the Mexican border and is a monster quake of magnitude 7.8, something we haven't seen since the Civil War, downtown LA could get more than a minute of warning before shaking arrives here. 
describe to us a little bit about how this works. I know there's uh, seismic sensors that it uses, but the interesting thing that I saw in your article was it uses basically the speed of sound traveling through rock, and that's how it hits the sensors and whatnot. But since our communication systems are faster than that, that's how we can beat the earthquake. Think of any time you're in a lightning storm and you see the difference between lightning and you hear the thunder, you know, a little bit later. That's the advantage that we're using for earthquakes. So, you know, if an earthquake starts 180 miles away from downtown L.A., there will be a, more than a minute of heads up if you can get a communications line between the Salton Sea and downtown L.A. versus when the shaking will arrive here. The funny thing is, is that, you know, in the 1989 earthquake that hit the San Francisco Bay Area, it was known as the World Series earthquake. The earthquake actually happened in Santa Cruz, some miles away. So as people were trying to rescue people out of a collapsed freeway, the scientists actually set up a pretty crude earthquake early warning system to try to give people in the collapsed freeway enough time to get out of there if an aftershock happened and, and it was going to race up toward Oakland. How do these alerts come in? Does it go off on your phone kind of like an amber alert thing? Is it just really loud buzzing or can you set it differently? You know, actually, I don't know yet because uh, an earthquake hasn't happened since I've had the app installed on my phone. However, I am told that there's still some kinks that need to be worked out. Uh, your phone actually needs to be set not on silent. The app developers haven't quite yet figured out a way to override your phone being set on silent. So if you want to hear the warnings, you'll have to put it on sound motion. But what I understand is, is supposed to happen is that, you know, something will pop up on your phone saying, you know, uh, that shaking is on its way. Obviously, it's brand new. It just launched this past week. So it's going to take some time to really tune up. And, and obviously, we need some earthquakes to happen for it to have that real field test. But that's an interesting thing there. And I and that would be something that I would hope they work on because tons of people are always putting their phone on silent. And if the aim of this is to help prevent something really bad, I mean, it's got to buzz you loud so you can hear it. The other thing, too, is that there's going to be a bit of a learning curve on this, right? Because there's different ways of approaching it. Say you set your phone in the future, maybe there will be this possibility. Say you want to set your phone to get all the alerts if you feel a magnitude four or greater earthquake. You might get a lot of alerts before you feel something that is going to be devastating to you, but you'll get more time. You know, all earthquakes start the same. They all start as baby earthquakes, and only a very few of them become monster earthquakes. But say you set your threshold to be only magnitude 7 or greater. By doing so, you'll only have a few seconds to prepare, whereas other people who set their threshold to be different will get more seconds to prepare. Mexico and Japan, we were talking about them. They've had these systems in the making for many, many years now. Do we know why the U.S. has been so far behind? California, I know, was working on it specifically, but why are we so far behind on this? The big difference is that Mexico City had, you know, at least 5,000 people die in their 1985 earthquake. In the 1995 Kobe earthquake, 5,000 people died at least in Japan. When those earthquakes happened, their public knew that this kind of science was available and they said, you know, we got to get this done. That hasn't really happened in California. It was only in the, maybe the last 12 years or so that political support has been growing about where scientists and folks in the media could say, hey, look, look at these countries. They have these successful systems. Why can't we have one in California? So where is the state? I know we're set now for L.A. and obviously, the, as you said, it's going to get better. But where are we for the state? 
There's another app developer, a Santa Monica-based company called Early Warning Lab, and they're in talks to release their own software to 100,000 test users, and they're hoping to do that for the entire state. So for folks outside of L.A. County that want to get in on the action, maybe look to see if you can get on that waiting list online. The cool thing about L.A.'s app is that it's open source, and and I was talking to the mayor today, and he said, you know, there are other counties like Orange County or Riverside County, if they want to get into the system. LA would be interested in, in talking with them and, and maybe there could be a way of, of getting alerts out to Orange County in the same app. It's one of those natural disasters that are so hard to predict. I mean, if it's a hurricane, you can see it coming. If it's a tornado, although they do develop very quickly, you kind of know it's coming. And the earthquake is the only one that you're really in the dark about. So it's great to finally have something like this in the city. And I know that it'll be worked on for the state to come. Ron Lynn, reporter for the L.A. Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Glad to be here. All right, that's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcasts on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno, and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.